0: Yes, I don't know what uh, that girl in the video is reading, but she's very serious about it, whatever it is. Uh, have you ever heard something that kind of sounded familiar, and, and, but the way that it goes in your head is kind of off? Uh, Sometimes it's kind of embarrassing. Um, A few years ago in 20, well, I guess it's more than a few years, 2013, uh, is when uh, we went to China to adopt our little guy, Kai. He was three at the time, he's 11 now. Uh, And uh, we were getting ready to travel and we were hanging out with some friends. Uh, and just talking about the trip and how far it was and the flights and the time changes and jet lag and all that stuff and they were you know asking a bunch of questions and 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 and, and I just happened to say well you know when you get over the Pacific like you cross the international dateline and going that direction you lose a day and then coming back this way it's the day you know you'd gain a day and and they were like what? Like that's a like that's a thing? I mean I've heard of the international dateline but, and they were totally serious, <laughs> but I, I thought that was a dating service for people in other countries. And I was like, uh, you probably shouldn't admit that to too many people uh, very often, but that happens to us, right? Where like we hear about something and we kind of know a little bit about it. It sounds familiar, but how, we, how it goes in our heads is a little bit off or maybe a lot off. And it especially happens to us when we're, when we're kids, right? Like in our family, we're, we're big fans of the Avengers movies. Every, well, except for my wife. She's not a fan of any movies, but she really does not like uh, superhero movies. And so, but me and my kids are definitely fans and we've kind of seen them all. And, and uh, if you haven't seen them, I, what are you even doing with your life? I mean, come on, like, you, you need some superhero stuff in your, in, in your life. Well, the main bad guy who's kind of behind the scenes in the whole thing, the main villain, he really comes out very pronounced in the storyline in the last couple of movies, his name's Thanos. And, and despite the Avengers and all of their powers and working together, like for the better part of two big old long movies, like he gets the best of them. And, and, and so he, there's this line that he keeps saying in the movies and I'm not gonna spoil anything for you. And if you haven't seen it, you deserved it to be spoiled anyway. But he, he keeps saying no matter... How hard they try, they keep losing to him, and so he has this line that he says that he where he says, "I am inevitable." Uh, anybody remember that? Like, I am inevitable. Okay, so he says that uh, a couple times in, in a couple different movies, and so uh, a couple months ago, I was actually hanging out with Kai, my eleven year old, and, and we were talking about the Avengers. We were talking about the storyline, and and because for him and my six year old, like it's real life. Like somewhere, Iron Man is really a person, and Thanos is really threatening the universe, and so, um, and, and, but Kai goes, hey, dad, like, why does Thanos keep telling the Avengers that they can't eat him? And I was like, what? What are you talking about? And he's like, yeah, like, he keeps saying it over and over and over again, you can't eat me, and I was like, and so I thought, and I was like, oh, wait, 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 are you talking about when he says I am inevitable? He's like, yeah, and I was like, I think the word you're thinking is inedible. And he's like, yeah, like inedible. Why does he tell them they can't eat him? And I was like, no, I mean, they sound similar, sounds familiar, completely different words. And now I gotta be honest, the movies are ruined for me because every time I watch it, I hear Thanos saying, I am inedible (laughs) Um, and so what we've all had experiences where the thing that we thought we heard right the thing that that kind of sounded familiar to us was actually really very different from the actual thing only it wasn't like datelines and movie quotes it was some other bit of information some bit of knowledge or wisdom that really could have helped us if we actually knew the right thing right it could have given it could have given us some sort of insight could have reframed our situation which which is really what we're all after, right? Like a bit of wisdom that will lend itself to a deeper, richer, fuller, more beautiful life. And so last week we began this conversation on what is easily the most famous sermon in the history of all sermons, the Sermon on the Mount. And to be honest, a lot, of, a lot of it may sound familiar to you, regardless of whatever your church background is, whether you're a church person or not, or how much church time you've logged in your life, or whether or not you've actually really read that sermon and what Jesus said, because different parts of it have kind of worked their way into the language of our culture and society. And because there's things in it, like where Jesus said things like turn the other cheek, or, or don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing or judge not, or you will be judged, which is all really good and helpful stuff. But there's also some other stuff in there that's more challenging, as if some of that isn't challenging enough. In fact, anybody who says that they love the Sermon on the Mount, I don't think they've actually really read all of the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus says some pretty extreme things in it. Because the Sermon on the Mount is also the gouge out your eye, cut off your hand, love your enemies kind of stuff. It's the stuff that when you read it, sometimes you're like, I mean, that sounds really good, Jesus, but nobody really does this. Nobody actually lives like this because it's the, if someone wants one, you give them two. If they want your shirt, you give them your coat as well. Like it's all that kind of stuff. And so right from the beginning, Jesus doesn't waste any time. He comes right out of the gate of his sermon in Matthew chapter 5 and he just comes out guns blazing. He comes out saying just some really intense, revolutionary stuff. And he opens with what's come to be known, what we, what we know of and what we call the Beatitudes. And like I said a second ago, it's revolutionary stuff. And so what does he say? Well, let's, let's look at it together and we're gonna try to make our way through some of this. We're gonna try to cover a lot of ground today. So hopefully you can stick with me and we'll make it through together. So Matthew chapter five, beginning with verse three, it says this, it says, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God, or the sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, in a few minutes, we're going to kind of jump into the specifics of what he's saying in these eight statements. Um. And part of the reason why this stuff is so powerful though is because of the timing. Like some of what he said was so surprising because of what was happening. And we got into this a little bit last week, what was happening right before and what people anticipated him saying. Like, have you ever been in a situation where you knew like an ask was coming, but you just didn't know when and you didn't know how and so you kind of have your antennas up wondering what, what's the sales pitch is going to be? Like, what is, what is the sales technique that they're going to use? Maybe it was that, that time that you were sitting through a timeshare presentation because you decided it was worth it to trade two or three hours of your time for two or three days worth of free vacation. Or, or like that, that time that you were looking to buy a new car and, and you just know at some point that the salesman's just finally gonna look at you and just be like, you know, so what's it gonna take to get this done? You know, like They're just gonna say something really dumb like that where you're like, it's gonna take you leaving me alone, get away from me, right? But we also have those moments sometimes socially too. Have you, have you ever been sitting at lunch or dinner with someone kind of wondering why they wanted to meet with you and what it's about and what the big ask is gonna be? That actually I'm on the receiving end of that a lot um, and, and so there's a lot of times where we reach out to people like, Hey, can we have dinner? And we go to dinner and they're just kind of like, what are they going to ask of us? And so I like have a habit now when I go to sit down with lunch at lunch with somebody or we go to dinner with somebody, the first thing is to sit down, Hey, just want you to know we have no agenda. I'm not going to ask anything of you. I just want We just wanted to hang out and spend time with you. And you can just see them just be like, Phew. and I'm like, so will you serve at church? No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. <clears throat> But the truth is like, we've all been in those kinds of situations, right? We all know what that feels like. Well, that was the energy and the anticipation really leading up to this moment when Jesus starts teaching in Matthew five. Because the first four chapters of this book, the first kind of uh, uh, four chapters that sort of chronicle this moment coming together for Jesus and everything that came before it, like it tells us that Jesus goes from being really a totally obscure figure to being a total and complete rock star in terms of his fame and popularity. Because he's done a whole bunch of miracles at this point. He had this really incredible supernatural baptism. He now has disciples. He's got this massive following. People are traveling from as far away as 50, 60, sometimes hundred miles on foot just to see him in person, just to hear him speak. And he's actually at this point, even in his life, he's be starting to become a threat to all the powers that be. He's getting the attention of the massive you know, uh, religious machine of the nation of Israel. He's getting a little bit of attention from even the, 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 the empire of Rome. And so everybody is feeling like, okay, like this, this is the moment, like there's, there's gonna be some sort of massive ask that's gonna be coming soon. How is Jesus gonna cash in on all of this popularity and fame and influence and platform that he has now? Because at this point in history, there had been some so-called messiahs that had come and gone before. Jesus certainly wasn't the first guy ever to stand up and say, hey, follow me, I'm the one. Like, I, God, I, yes, God has anointed me, like, I'm God. And like the people then, Like we all know how those things usually go, right? I mean, this is usually the moment when the prophet or the Messiah or the preacher stands up and says something like, okay, so what God really wants is for all of you to give me most of your money and like 20 or 30 of your most beautiful women to be my wives. Because being the Messiah is a good gig if you can get it. That's usually how it goes, right? And even in these situations, even if that person is a little bit more sophisticated, this is the point where the long con kind of begins, where they start manipulating and grooming their followers to do everything that they're gonna ask of them. And it really has a predictable ending, right? It ends in cults and compounds and control, and, and, and it just all comes crashing down eventually. And so everybody's kind of wondering, how is Jesus gonna handle this moment where there's this massive following? He has all of this, this power and influence. And Jesus doesn't do anything that anybody expects him to do. In fact, he does the opposite. Just when everyone thought they knew exactly what Jesus was going to say, Jesus changes the conversation completely. And he's like, here's everything about the system and the rules that you're all playing by to try to win at life. And I gotta tell you, it's completely empty. It's completely backwards. And so here's how life actually works. Here's how God and his kingdom work. Here's who God is looking for. Here's what God is wanting to happen. Here's how he designed life. Here's what's actually worthwhile and valuable in terms of pursuing and building your life on. Have you ever been in a situation where you had been kind of building or collecting something only to find out that it was pretty much useless. Like anybody remember in the 90s when everybody thought that Beanie Babies were gonna be worth money? If you're too young, we're so dumb that we thought that those things were an investment about 30 years ago. And I knew people that had massive collections and they were like, dude, I'm going to cash in. I was like, no, you're not. You're going to give all those to the goodwill in about two years. Right? Like, or that moment in junior high or high school when you're totally into that one girl and she's completely out of your league, but you either don't know it or you don't care. And so you come up with this brilliant strategy, this brilliant plan to try to get her attention. And so you're like working and scrimping and saving up some money so you can do something kind of spectacular to get her attention. And and then the moment of truth comes and you execute your plan. And what you did didn't matter to her at all. And she friend zoned you really hard. And then you realize by the way that she responded that you were actually trading in the wrong currency. That what mattered to her was popularity or social status and you had neither because you weren't an athlete. People didn't know who you were and you didn't have a car. (laughs) See, what what in that moment, what you thought would be valuable and what you thought would matter actually turned out to be worthless. She changed the currency. And and that's kind of what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. He changes the currency because like us, like the people he was speaking to, they thought that the currency of life is money because money is what will allow you to move from this station in life to that station in life. And it also will maybe buy you a little bit of political power or social capital. And then Jesus stands up and is like, none of that matters at the height of his interest, at the height of all the intrigue about him, at the height of the popularity, instead of making this brilliant cult leader sales pitch and cashing out, Jesus actually gives a completely upside down sort of backward set of values from everything that they knew and chased after and everything that we know and chased after and consider valuable. And what he says, honestly, is something that is way more likely to run people off than to have a whole bunch of people go all in with them. And when I read that and when I think about that, when we talk about that, to me that that's just this incredible demonstration of just how profound and life-changing this thing that Jesus came to build and introduce and launch in the world actually was. And so for the people that that, that were hearing it, it would have been challenging as Jesus started to talk. It would have been confusing. It would have been maybe even a little bit scary, but also exciting and refreshing and hopeful because what he's talking about, like the God and the faith and the life that he's describing is is actually accessible to everybody everywhere. Not just the people who run the religious establishment, not just people who were born into money, not just people who have status and power and wealth. It's available to people who are on the fringes and people who are right in the center cut of culture. And Jesus was the first one to ever have any kind of conversation like that. So I want you to look again with me at these verses at the beginning of a sermon that we call the Beatitudes. And and we're gonna really try to take them one at a time. Um, and, And honestly, we can only really scratch the surface because each of them could be their own talk or their own series of talks. Uh, but, but I wanted to kind of zero in on a few of them as we go, to, go along. And so let's read again. We'll take them together. Matthew chapter five, verse three, it says, the first one, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That is the worst opening line in history if you're someone who's just trying to start a religion. You have all of this popularity, all of this momentum, All everybody wants... Everybody wants to hear what you have to say. Everybody's tuning in, everybody's leaning in and that's what you go with, Jesus? I mean, if I was advising Jesus, I'd be like, okay, uh, run your sermon by us one more time. Okay, blessed are the poor. No, let, time out, Jesus. I don't know if you know how people work, but let's not lead with that, okay? Because honestly, think about it. Even for us, when he says blessed are the poor, who really cares what he says after that? You hear that? And your immediate reaction is, "Mm, nope, pretty sure this guy's not for me, right? No matter how we try to dress this up, poverty of any kind isn't really that attractive. It wasn't attractive to them. It's not attractive to us. We run from it, not to it. It wasn't like people were like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Dude, sign me up. High five. No, nobody was, everybody's like, "What, what is he talking about? And yet this is exactly where Jesus starts. He changes the currency. And so he says that God is actually looking for those who are poor in spirit. And part of what he's saying is that th- this reality for everybody that's listening, because the crowds that were there, they were from all over. They came from all different parts of culture. They came from all different socioeconomic backgrounds. And so you had rich people and powerful people. You had people of, of wealth and influence. You had people all over the, the spectrum. And part of what he's saying is, look, we're all broken. We're all in the same boat. You're all spiritually bankrupt. But that's the good news. The good news is, if you got money, God don't care about your money. If you don't got money, God don't care that you don't got money. When you come to God, the playing field is level. There's no wealth and power and privilege, all that stuff that you think matters, it doesn't matter to God. What God is looking for is people who in humility own who they really are. And they admit that they can't know and be and do it all on their own. That they're ultimately, that we are all ultimately dependent on God. See, I don't think it's an accident that Jesus started here. I think right from the beginning, he chose to start in this place so that his audience, who was all leaning in, boom, they're immediately off balance. Like, whoa, what is he talking about? Because as far as they were concerned, as far as they'd ever heard in their whole life, that to be rich is a blessing and God blesses those who are rich. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. See, I think he's laying out right, at the, right from the top. Like, hey, there's a God, and it ain't you. There is an agenda, and it ain't yours. That God loves you, but your wealth, and your talent, your position, your birthright, your privilege, your influence, your piety are not what he's looking for. And if you were born without those things, or you lack those things, You're chasing after and accumulating them isn't gonna actually bring you what you hope it brings you when you finally get them. I think he started here because it's a description of the only way that we can come to God and the only way that we can connect with God. Blessed are the poor in spirit because that's who the kingdom of heaven belongs to. Whatever that is, whatever it looks like in God's kingdom, it belongs to people who are poor in spirit. And it's only that when we get this, that then we're prepared for the rest of what he's about to unpack and the rest of these beatitudes. And so he continues. Verse four, he says, blessed are those who mourn. It just keeps getting better, doesn't it? First poverty, now mourning. Like none of us wake up and just go, you know what I could really use just a giant helping of pain and suffering and mourning. That would really make my life go a lot better. But Jesus says that there's something transformative that actually takes place in our lives, that takes place in us and between us and God during life's most painful moments and experiences that simply doesn't happen in any other place and in any other way. See, we obviously don't mourn things that don't matter. And and so when we make space in our lives to actually begin to grieve our losses, we begin waking up to the reality that there's more going on, that God isn't somewhere else. He's right here. And sometimes what's lost is a relationship or a person that we loved. Other times it's a dream or a certain season of life. And sometimes it's our innocence and just the devastation of our own choices. But when we come to God in the pain of our sin and our suffering and our separation, they actually become a path to something more to the life that he created us for. And it's there that God actually meets us with his comfort. And that's the blessing. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. See, I, I think if we were writing this, we would be like, Blessed are those who are rich and have what they need to do what they want. Blessed are those who are happy. And Jesus goes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Verse five, he says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. are Are you starting to like sense that Jesus knows exactly the way that human beings think and have organized themselves in the way that we prioritize life. And Jesus is going out and going, that's a pillar. Let's knock that pillar out. Let's knock that one out. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. See, meekness is just the intersection of humility and gentleness and strength and courage. It isn't weakness. It's actually strength that's harnessed by character. Meekness is that place where we leverage all that we have, we leverage the best of who we are. We leverage our strength to build people up and to empower them in their life rather than to bulldoze them and overpower them. See, meekness refuses to use what you, is refusing to, to use what you know and what you have to make other people feel small or to try to control them, try to manipulate them. See, in our culture, in our life, especially you know, the, the people that were sitting there listening to Jesus and they're thinking about what kind of movement is he going to start? Is it going to be a violent movement? Because we got these, these, you know, oppressive people that are, what are we going to do about that, right? And, and so for them, there were two options. And this is the way we see the world usually, right? Like the, the options are violence or power and force and asserting your will over people who are trying to do the same to you or running away in cowardice and fear. But Jesus stands in the face of all of that and defies it all with this third way. And he says that there's this inheritance. There's a legacy that belongs only only to the meek. And by by the way, when you think about it in this terms, like that's how Christianity spread across the globe in the first century, in spite of being outlawed by the most powerful empire on earth. That's how it's always spread. It's not through conquest or power or lobbying the government. It was through strength and meekness. He keeps going. Verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be, fi- will be filled. And sometimes when I read this, I think, Jesus, you almost got it right. This one, you almost nailed it. Because I, it would make more sense if you would have just said, blessed are the righteous, right? Because that, that's a true statement blessed are you when you're righteous. I mean, isn't that who God is looking for is those who are righteous? And Jesus would say, no, because you're you're only hungry and thirsty for what you don't have, right? And so he says, blessed are those who who hunger and thirst for righteousness. People who are not righteous, but they're hungering and thirsting for that. See, we measure and judge each other by what we say and do, but God looks deeper. He looks at our heart. We're fixated on being right and, and on saying and doing and believing the right things. In our culture, we, we, would, we would pursue it and say it like this, like, right? blessed are you when you're right, because that's what we're concerned most. Like, you just look at our culture. We, we, we want to be right. We want our side to win because we have the truth. And it doesn't even matter what the conversation is. Everybody's got the truth, on. everybody's right, and I wanna, you need to submit because we're right. And Jesus is like, God is more concerned with your attitudes and your appetites than your answers and your actions. Because who you become will actually flow out of what you're hungering and thirsting for at a heart level, at a soul level. Everything else we crave, everything else we consume, every other path we take will leave us empty, no matter how much of it we get. but Him alone, it's the only pursuit that can actually satisfy our souls. It's at this point in the very opening part of Jesus' sermon that things kind of shift in the Beatitudes. There's a subtle shift in what he's saying. Because these first four things he says are, are really about what's going on between me and God. But then the last several kind of shift a little bit and can be more about what's going on between me and you. And so in verse seven, Matthew writes that Jesus said this, blessed are those who are merciful for they will be shown mercy. See where, where religion is defined by manipulating people through guilt and shame. Jesus says that he came to create a tribe, that he came to create a movement, that he's building this thing that's going to be defined by mercy. And he's not just telling us what to do. He's actually defining who we need to become. Not not to be people who simply choose the occasional act of mercy, but to become somebody whose life could only be described as merciful. See, I, I think what happens and I'll just speak for myself and maybe it makes me a bad person or a bad Christian. But a lot of times in my personal conversation with God, like I'd really love it to really only be that conversation to only be about me and him. Like God, let's, let's talk about you loving me and me loving you, but mostly just you loving me. Like that's, that's my favorite part of this conversation. But but the moment that we actually recognize our need for God's grace and for his mercy, God actually immediately begins a conversation with us about giving those things away, about our life being the conduit that those things flow through to other people. In, In Ephesians chapter two, verse four, it actually describes God as being rich and rich in and generous with his mercy, which is a really beautiful thing. But the truth is, is that he never gives us just enough for us. He gives us enough that's way more than what we need so that we can give it away. And then Jesus says, he ties the blessing in a way that the flow of mercy that we receive seems to be proportional to the flow of mercy that we give. Blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. Verse eight, he says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will receive see God. Where religion is about looking clean on the outside, Jesus is about being clean on the inside. Religion is about behaving and Jesus is about becoming. We're all about the show, but God is concerned about the substance. Now, here's the problem when I get to this particular one for me. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. My problem is I actually know my heart and pure isn't really a word that I'd use to describe it all the time, if at all. Because pure is like guiltless, innocent, untainted. Pure is like my motives, there's no ulterior motives. Pure is like, I don't pretend to be something I'm not to win you over, to get you to like me or you to think better of me than I actually am. And I actually know the selfishness and the anger and the greed and the lust and the rebellion that's in my own heart. So what do we do? Blessed are the pure in heart, I guess I'm I'm not gonna see God because that's not what I would use to describe my heart. See, I I think this is a moment where Jesus is beginning to point us, he's pointing the crowd to the reality of who he is, where he's pointing us back at himself because a pure heart really is impossible for us to achieve on our own, right? It's something that that he does for us. It's something that he does in us. But I I want you to notice that he's looking for pure hearts, not perfect ones. See, I I think sometimes we read it, we, we read it like he said, blessed are those who are perfect in heart. And we're just like, ah, that's, that's a standard that I'll never get to. That I'll never be that. But he says, blessed are the pure in heart. And, and part of what he means, you know, part of what that, that word pure actually means here is that it means genuine and sincere, free from hypocrisy and phoniness and falsehood. And all of a sudden that shifts the conversation, right? Because the standard is not perfection. The standard is that I'm transparent and I'm authentic and I'm vulnerable, even with the mess that's going on inside of me. And Jesus says that when our heart is clean, that our vision will be clear. That's the moment that we'll actually begin to see. And he's not talking about seeing God with our eyes and he's not talking about something that's gonna happen after we die. He's saying, that's the moment where you'll be able to actually begin to discern and perceive and experience God in a way that you have never been able to see him or experiencing him or perceive him before. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the children of God. He says, blessed are those who make, who work for and build and construct construct and manufacture peace. It's not those who are right. It's not those who prove their point. It's not those who win the argument. It's those who make peace. See, and ultimately, obviously, that's why Jesus came, right? Is to make peace between you and God and me and God. And what does a, a peacemaker look like? What, what does he mean when he says, blessed are the peacemakers? Well, I think a peacemaker is, is a bridge builder. A peacemaker is a, a grace giver and a hand extender, a self-sacrificer, a debt canceler, a truth in love teller, an offense coverer, an enemy lover, a hope distri- distributor, a wound healer, a head lifter, an arm raiser, a kindness promoter, a dispute settler, a conflict resolver, a, forgi- a forgiveness giver, and a strife ender. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they, they're the ones that God is looking for. See, it's like Jesus saying to experience God's love is to actually become his agent of reconciliation in the world, to be tasked with making peace in and for the people in the world around us. Blessed are the peacemakers. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, he has one final description. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But He doesn't actually stop there on this one. Jesus actually has a little addendum to this final one. In verses 11 and 12, he says this. He says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now there's, there's so much here. But can I just say, um, sometimes we're persecuted because we're arrogant. Sometimes we're persecuted because of stupid things we said or did. Sometimes we're persecuted because we're stubborn. There's no blessing in that. <laughs> That's just being human and doing dumb stuff. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. And part of what he's saying is that doing the good and choosing the right is no guarantee that things will go the way we want them to go, but it's worth it anyway. Have you ever like been grinding away at trying to live and do good and be right and live right and live for God? And then things just like, it's like life is just pounding you into the ground. And that moment where you're just kind of like, Man, God, do you even see what's going on here? Like I went to church four weeks in a row and then I got a flat tire or I can't, you know, it's like, what's going on? Like, that's what we think. Like that God is a vending machine and we put in all the good stuff and all the right stuff and we go to church and we put a little bit in the offering and we don't, you know, we're not mean to our kids and we, you know, refrain from chewing that person out online and we let old ladies cross the street and and we're just like, God, I've been a good person. What is going on? But Jesus is like, actually, when you're actually leaning into the good, when you're allowing your life to to build something really beautiful in the world, it's almost a guarantee that things are not gonna go your way. It's almost a guarantee that you're gonna run into some friction and resistance. But what I love about what he's saying is, look, I think part of what he's saying is, you guys, when that happens, when the whole world, even if the whole world rises up against you, you are nobody's victim. If you are with me and in me and you're part of this thing that I'm building, people might do stuff to you. There might be friction between you and other people, but you are not a victim. You represent me. You're part of something bigger and deeper and more beautiful and more profound than even you can understand. So when you choose to act in love, when you choose to live your life in a dogged pursuit of justice for what's right and good, that there's this sacred transaction that occurs, that's something that transcends this world and this life and this reality. And you actually make the invisible God visible and you make his intangible, untouchable kingdom tangible to the world around you. See, Jesus starts off in the Beatitudes calling us to a life that is poor in spirit. And he essentially ends with calling us to a life that is rich in love. And as he's talking, you can imagine people just being completely blown away. And when you read the story of the life of Jesus, there's all these moments when Jesus uses this phrase where he says, to those who have ears to hear, let them hear. And it's essentially as if Jesus is about, to, is saying, what you're about to hear, you ain't gonna like. What you're about to hear is counterintuitive and countercultural. And it's, you're gonna bristle at it at first, but don't dig deeper. Think about what I'm saying. And then there's all these times where Jesus is teaching and the people that were following him was like, man, this is just too hard. What you're talking about, like we don't, we actually like the other kind of kingdom that's about position and influence, and we don't have to forgive people, we don't have to love our enemy like and so there's all these moments in the life of Jesus where the people listening to him are like, "Eh, we'll stick with the regular religious stuff, Jesus, we like that better and so I think this is one of those moments where people are just blown away and they're they're kind of wondering whether or not they really actually want to be a part of this thing because it sounds really incredible but also it sounds like i mean i like that other people got to do that i'm not so sure i i want to do that because they're and rightfully so they're thinking like if if what jesus is saying here is true then so much of what i've built my life on so much of maybe even what i've kind of built my faith around So much of everything that I've been sort of hoarding and chasing and valuing and jealous of other people because they have more of, so much of that just doesn't, it just doesn't matter. And so if Jesus is who he claims to be, then there is something else that does matter. And you know what? They would have been right in thinking those things. See, I I think this is the very conversation that God is wanting to have with us as well. And it's so uncomfortable. Because if you know this, you're like, yeah, 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 I know that. Yeah, that's so beautiful. That what Jesus teaches, it's awesome. Because I know when we hear it, we're like, "They, they sound so poetic and beautiful and so utopian. And you can almost hear John Lennon singing Imagine underneath as you read it. And you're just like, yeah. But the Sermon on the Mount wasn't Woodstock. And Jesus isn't like a hippie who's just trying to help us all get along. It's actually the son of God challenging everything we believe about how life works. And even where life is found, it's Jesus changing the currency on us in the middle of this conversation. And what he says isn't about one day, someday. It's not pie in the sky and after we die and Jesus in heaven, it's going to be so awesome. It's not about what heaven's like once we're no longer here. It's about what life is like right here and right now. It's a description of the values and the kind of life that God created us for. And the, the, that Jesus insists that we, will, we must live if we want to be a part of the thing that he's doing, that he's building. And so the question for you and me is, what, what do we do with all this stuff? How, how are we going to respond to it? We just go, oh, that's nice. It's really cool. I really like that verse. And I put it on my fridge. Or, you know, it's got on my car. It's very inspirational. All that's great. But if it doesn't actually lead us to live a different kind of life, a Jesus kind of life. Jesus like, it, everything else you're chasing is empty. See, because if if what he said is true, then a lot of the things that we're building our lives around, maybe even a lot of the parts that we've built our faith around, they, they don't matter. And if Jesus is who he claims to be, then there is something else that does matter. Some other way of life that is actually life. Because what Jesus said is not an easy truth. There's no doubt about it. And that's going to be like a recurring theme as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. The truths are not easy, but it it, it is a better life. It it is a life that's worth dying for. It, It is a life that's worth living for. One final note before we pray. The word blessed means so much of the things that we think it means. It means happy, favored, envied, content, but it also means to enlarge or expand, which I think kind of fits more with what Jesus was saying. Because I don't think Jesus started out the most important sermon where he's going to lay out in a couple of chapters in Matthew, everything he says and does after this flows flows out about what he's about to say, where he's laying out what God is like and what the kingdom of God is like. I don't think he started with how to have a happy life. I, I think he was going, this is the way that God designed life to work. These are the values that he intended. This is what it means to be human. And when you move in that direction, your life will get bigger. It will expand. It will be enlarged. It will be fuller and deeper and richer. And when you move away from this and you already experience this, but your life will contract and it gets really small and it will be empty. See, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are merciful. Their life gets bigger as they live in the light of who God is. Why don't we uh, pray? And have a conversation with God about what he might be talking to you about right now. Let's pray.